0: in honor of yesterday's Vesak celebration, we'll tonight speak of the Buddha's life and journey, but particularly the meaning for it, for us in these times. And on Sunday, we'll again resume the series on the Satipatthana Sutta, which we've been talking about over the last month or so. We can consider the Buddha's life on different levels. We can consider it simply on the historical level. According to many Buddhist scholars, although not all, he was born in the year 566 BC, born into a noble family of the Sakyas, which was, I call it a tribe or a clan or an area. Which is now on the border of India and Nepal. He was born as a noble of that clan. And from the stories in the suttas, the stories which he recounted in the course of his teachings, we can trace some of the very specific events of his life. His birth and his childhood, and his upbringing, you know, his training, his marriage, his going forth, into homelessness, his enlightenment, and the many years of his teachings. These are all the specifics of the particular historical individual. They're called Siddhartha Gautama. On another level, when we look at his life, we can really understand it as a basic archetype of humanity. That is, his life as the full expression or the full embodiment of the awakened mind. On this archetypal level, the Buddha's life is not simply the strivings and the realizations of a particular individual. We can also understand his life as the unfolding of a great mythological journey Now, mythological here does not mean unreal. It doesn't mean imaginary. The great power of myth in our lives is that connects our individual experiences with more universal principles. So on this archetypal level, the Buddha's life reveals to us aspirations in our own. It helps us find a deeper meaning, a deeper purpose, a fuller context for our own life choices. On this archetypal level, it connects the Buddha's journey (coughs) with our own. In the book Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell, who, as you all know, is a great scholar of the world's myths, he uses... The Buddha's life in particular, as this archetypal journey of spiritual awakening. So, I'd like to frame the talk tonight in terms of the stages of this journey. The first stage that Campbell talks about in his description of the Buddha's life, he calls it the call to destiny. And it happens when there's something which occurs in our lives (coughs) that makes us question how we are living. Makes us question what our lives are about. When we realize that the conventional understandings of society no longer satisfy us. The underpinnings of this conventional understanding... contained in two words. In other the words, to have. We have possessions. We have relationships. We have professions. We have a mind. We have a body. And of course, all of this is built on the great illusion of having a self. To have. This is how we relate in the world. The psychoanalyst, Eric Frome he really summed it up. And he said, I am what I have. And reflect for a moment of how we understand ourselves. We define ourselves but by what we have, including this very mind and body. But there's a problem with this. With this conventional understanding. And that is, given the profound truth of impermanence and change, there's nothing we have that we won't lose. That is inevitable. So, in this world of having, there is always an underlying sense of anxiety or unease, or incompleteness. In the early life of the bodhisattva, and that's the term used for the Buddha before his awakening, the world of having was very strong. He was born into this (laughs) very noble family. His father was a king. He had a loving, loving family, All the sense desires were gratified. All the sense pleasures of the day were at his disposal. He had training in all the worldly knowledges and skills. He had a loving wife. He had everything that the world values and everything that we value in the world today. Well, for Prince Siddhartha, his call to destiny (coughs) came when he began to question these values. When he came face to face with what are traditionally called the heavenly messengers. When he came face to face with the realities of disease, of old age, of death. His call to destiny came when he realized that these are not mistakes in the lives of some few people, but that they happen to us all. And in talking about his own call to destiny, call to awakening, he said that this thought, this reflection came to him. Why should I, being subject to decay and death, subject to change, Keep seeking that which is subject to decay and death. Keep seeking that which is subject to change. In in these great cycles of birth and death, where are freedom and happiness to be found? What is the nature of birth and death? And is there something beyond this cycle So these are the same questions, really, for all of us. What are we doing with our lives? What choices are we making in our lives? In a world of change and impermanence, what really is of value? What's interesting is that many people have these questions I don't think think these are questions only for spiritual adepts. These are basic questions of life, and I think they arise for for very many people. The problem is that we often quickly forget them, you know, in the busyness of general life activities. But each one of us here, obviously, has had some deep call to awakening... Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. You know, there's quite a major dedication and commitment of effort to be here to do this kind of practice. Each one of us has had events in our lives that brought us to this point. When I look back at my own life, I see that really... It was the early experience of dukkha that, that became the call, the, this call to destiny, you know, this call to the Dharma. Growing up, I had intermittent but quite violent outbursts of temper as a young boy. Things would, particularly in family dynamics, just a button would be pressed and there would be this uncontrollable kind of outburst of temper and rage. And I made myself and everyone around me miserable when this happened. It was, it was a very unpleasant occurrence. And then around age 11 or 12, just after one of these outbursts, I had the first major insight into my mind. And it was a very powerful turning point. I realized that I had a choice. That between the impulse to explode and the explosion, there was a possibility of making another choice. I didn't have to do it. And I remember even then, of course, I had no meditation training at that point, but kind of in my own naive way in recognizing that I remember telling myself Joseph, at that time I was Joey <laughs> Joey just count to ten <laughs> you know you have this, you have this impulse to <laughs> explode count to ten yeah, and it was, it was very powerful because it really was this first insight into the possibility or, or the seeing of intention because I didn't have all these words at the time, but that's what it was. And it transformed. I mean, that, that was a turning point, you know, in that particular behavior pattern. So that was one one arena in looking back where I said, yes, yeah, something turned my attention back into my own mind. And then not long after that, uh, When I was 12, my father died, and it was quite suddenly. And even though it took many years to actually let it in and process emotionally, it was really a very profound recognition of the fact of death. Someone is there, and then suddenly they're not there. And at 12, it was like, whoa, (laughs) You know, what is this about? And there was this very deep personal understanding that this can happen any time. You know, this was completely unexpected, out of the blue. Death can happen any time, and it's just part of this cycle of existence. So I think reflecting for each one of us, on the early seeds of our turning towards the Dharma, or even perhaps more recent events, you know, on those events that have brought us to this journey of understanding ourselves, the value in this is that it helps remind us, it helps reconnect us with our own inner source of inspiration. It reminds us, particularly in times of You know, difficulty in our practice reminds us why we're here, why we're doing this. And it also helps us remember (laughs) that our practice and our experience now is really part of a much larger journey. So this is the first stage of this mythological unfolding of awakening the call to destiny. The second stage is called the great renunciation. In order for us to awaken to the hidden possibilities of life, we need to weaken our attachments to our habitual way of viewing things. We need to weaken our attachments to our habitual way of relating to experience. Because things are not always as they seem to be. It takes a kind of renunciation to come out of the seduction of appearances. There are striking examples of this, of course, in science all the time you know some some time ago i read this article uh, about astronomy and previously they had thought in the area of the sky around the big dipper my favorite constellation that there weren't there weren't a lot of other stars you know the relatively empty part of the sky and then they got you know through a more powerful telescope I don't know if it was the Hubble telescope or one of the others and they discovered hundreds of millions of new galaxies it made me think we might very well be missing some things (laughs) in our perception of the world (laughs) you know hundreds of millions of new galaxies (laughs) which where we thought it had been relatively empty and there's another... I'm not, I'm not actually... don't have much of a science background, but there are these few little scientific facts that kind of just catch my imagination. Another one, which really just opened up this possibility of hidden realities. I read someplace that phenomena on the level of quantum reality, whatever that is, that phenomena on the level of quantum reality to the size of a sugar cube is the same as a sugar cube is to the entire observable universe. So it's like going backwards from the entire observable universe to the sugar cube as the sugar cube is to that quantum world. So there's, there's amazing dimensions of things that we just don't know anything about in our ordinary Understanding of the world. But as we undergo this meditative process, we begin to at least get glimpses that there's this same vastness within ourselves, within our own minds. You know, time and space take on very different meanings, and we might have some senses of that in our own practice. But when meditative, meditation is very advanced, it really opens up into different understandings. I don't know whether you've probably, many of you have read uh, Amy Schmidt's book on, on Dipama, and you know our teacher who had this extraordinary attainment both in Vipassana, in Samatha practice, in Jhana practice, in psychic powers. And there are these stories in the book which are quite extraordinary. In one of of the experiments that Munindraji, was uh, teaching her, uh, he he had her go into the future. And at that time, Utant was the Secretary General of the United Nations. So this was quite a while ago. And he was scheduled to be giving a talk in a month's time. So Munindraji had Deepama go into the future a month, hear the talk, write it all down, and kind of you know, come back or <laughs> and then a month later he gave the talk, it was the exact talk, word for word. And she all did that just in her meditation sitting in, in Burma. And there are a lot of other kind of fun stories <laughs> in the book. Now these special powers as is made very clear in the teachings are not necessary for enlightenment, for awakening, and often, in fact, they might be a hindrance if they're not held correctly. I'm simply pointing out the understanding that our ordinary view of things, our ordinary perception of things, is not the whole picture. The great renunciation means stepping back from that firm attachment to our current view, which opens us up to other possibilities. Alfred North Whitehead, he said, it requires a very unusual mind to undertake an analysis of the obvious And sometimes I think that's what meditation is. It's it's an analysis of the obvious. Because through this analysis, we begin to discern what is hidden. What could be more obvious than a breath or a step? And we are taking the most simple aspects of our experience, the most universal aspects, You know, you go back to your friends after being here for two weeks or a month or six months or a year. Well, what did you do? Oh, I watched my breath. (laughs) Unless one is inside the experience, very hard to understand what the value is. But as we know, as the mind gets more concentrated, this analysis of the obvious, going into the obvious opens up whole new ways of understanding. So the great renunciation is not only letting go of our fixed notions of things being a certain way, it's also a renunciation of having as our deepest value, as our basic concept for relating to the world. And we see very deeply for ourselves that the wholesome qualities of mind are a much greater source of happiness than anything we could have or get or possess. In meditation practice, we practice renunciation when we let go of indulging the wandering mind. Instead of just letting the mind go and drift in the thoughts and fantasies, there's a renunciation. No, I'm not going to do that. I'll come back. When we let go of our attachment to sometimes deeply conditioned patterns of afflictive emotions, although they arise out of many past conditions, the afflictive emotions of, you know, of greed or fear or envy. Or How we relate to them arising is our choice. We may not have a choice in whether or not they arise, but the great renunciation is relating to in a, them in a way that is not feeding them, that is not identified with them. We practice the great renunciation when we let go of pleasure as being the guiding principle for our choices. So it's not always about what feels good. That's not necessarily a source of wisdom. It takes a renunciation, a willingness to step back from that and to really assess, is this skillful, is it not? Where is it leading? There's a wonderful, familiar quotation from uh, Henry David Thoreau, which I think so kind of expresses what we're doing here. He wrote that, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life. That's, that's a great uh, blurb for meditation practice, you know, and it's really what we're doing here. So for the bodhisattva, this stage of the journey, the great renunciation, manifest when he gave up his worldly life. He left the palace, he left his family, he left all his interests, he left the busyness of the world, and he began his quest. You know, and as most of you know, he studied first with uh, some of the great teachers of the day, mastering the jhanas, mastering the different concentration practices, being unsatisfied with that. He then undertook what was common in India in those times, the great ascetic disciplines, really, the self-mortification of the body as a way of conquering the self, seeing that that was not effective. And after six years, he gave all that up. He took some nourishment and he prepared for the third stage in this great journey of awakening. And this is called the great struggle. So There's the call to destiny that awakens us out of our habitual way of seeing things, the great renunciation. where we give up holding to the conventional understanding. And we embark on this great struggle. For the Bodhisattva, it came to culmination as he sat under the Bodhi tree on the night of his enlightenment. And Joseph Campbell, in the book, uh, he describes in very mythopoetic language the Bodhisattva sitting under the Bodhi Tree, the night of the great struggle, and I want to read just a little bit, uh, and it's very, it's very uh, vivid description. So, for the fun of it, you might just sit and let yourself, let yourself enter the language, this mythopoetic language. So the Bodhisattva placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the bow tree, and straightway was approached by Mara, the god of desire and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 12 leagues before him, 12 to the right, 12 to the left, and to the rear as far as the confines of the world. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree. And the god then assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks thunder and flame burning coals hot ashes boiling mud blistering sands mara hurled against the bodhisattva but the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers by the power of gotama's ten perfections mara then deployed the forces of desire and pining and lust but the mind of the great being was not distracted The god finally challenged his right right to be sitting there, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars. So that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world scattered garlands. A dramatic scenario. But interestingly enough, every time we sit, In every moment we are attempting to be mindful, we are like the bodhisattva under the tree, confronted by the armies of Mara, the very same armies of desire and fear and sleepiness and restlessness and anger and doubt and pride and conceit. The mountain crags and blistering sands and boiling mud are just poetic representations of these very forces in our own minds. Every time we sit, we are sitting under the Bodhi tree. It's very helpful to understand that our struggles have a meaning beyond our immediate experience of them, because they are part of a much larger unfolding. Unfolding. A part of a greater journey. Thomas Merton wrote of his time at Gethsemane Abbey. He said Prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. It's in times of our greatest suffering, our greatest difficulties in practice that the Four Noble Truths are most clearly illuminated. At that point, suffering is not theoretical. We're in it. Can we examine its causes? Can we see the possibility of an end? Do we know how to come to that end? Right there, we are living the Four Noble Truths. It's important to put the struggles, the armies of Mara, the stage of the great struggle, in context. This is really the significance and the importance of courageous effort. In Pali, the word is virya that is, the willingness to open to it all. But how we open is really of tremendous importance. And we, need, we each need to feel this out for ourselves. For some, the warrior mode of practice, and the, the bodhisattva was a warrior. He came from the warrior caste. And a lot of the language of the suttas is warrior language. And for some of us, or many of us at different times, this can be tremendously inspiring. This is something the Buddha was speaking of in his period of great struggle. He said, If the end is attainable by human effort... I shall not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. So this whole Path of awakening, path of enlightenment, is a human endeavor. People have walked this path. People have accomplished this. Can we arouse this kind of heroic effort that many people before us have done? Deepama told the story when she was beginning her practice. She was so weak and so ill, she had to crawl up the stairs to the meditation hall. Now, what do we do when we're ill? <laughs> do we crawl up the steps? Well, here there aren't any steps, but do we crawl into the hall? You know, or do we kind of, well, oh, I think I'll just take it easy. So it's, just, it's helpful to reflect on this and just to see, okay, well, what's possible for me? For others, though, this description of heroic effort, you know, with a quality described in this way, may not resonate very deeply. It might seem too daunting, too impossible. You know, we we think of that and we just get discouraged or self judgmental. You know, I could never do that. So the other aspect of is expressed not as the heroic striving but really as developing a courageous heart which is very much the same quality but it's expressed in a different way we can relate to it perhaps in a different way you know, and this courageous heart can come from a great love of wisdom you know, I want to understand this What is the cause of suffering in my life? And it's that love of wisdom which motivates us. Or maybe it's motivated by a tremendous compassion for our own suffering, for the suffering of others. So this is the courage simply to be present. Whatever is arising, can I be present for it? So in a way, the language is softer. It's more receptive but still inspiring us to play at the edges of our practice, play at the edges of our meditation, play at the edges, the boundaries in our lives, to open to new possibilities beyond our comfort zone, beyond our habits. You might sit a little longer, you might stay up later, you might get up a little earlier, you might take periods of sitting without moving, lots of different ways. And we can each find this for ourselves. Sometimes it's the courage to pull back. There are times when things become overwhelming for one reason or another. We've lost our balance. Sometimes it takes courage to say, let me pull back here for a while. This is a timely retreat would be in order in order to regain the balance. So it's all a sensitivity to our experience and how it's unfolding to find what's appropriate. There's the call to destiny. There's the great renunciation. There's the period of the great struggle. The last stage of this sacred journey Is called the Great Awakening. And for the Bodhisattva, this happened in the three watches of the night, of the night he sat down under the Bodhi tree. And in the first watch, it said that he saw, he looked back into his innumerable past lives. And he saw them all as being insubstantial and empty. You know, being born in a certain situation, living out his life, dying, being born in another situation, living it out, dying. I mean, just imagine if we had that ability to look back at countless past lives. We might not be quite so attached or fascinated with this one. You now we see it's just part of this endless cycle. but even if we don't have this ability which probably most of us don't we can look back at all the past experiences of this life because really it's the same thing where are they now? You know, we look back to experiences as a child or a young person or an older person or even last year or last month or last week or yesterday where are all these experiences now? What has, what has happened to them? What are we holding on to? And even more importantly, what new experience do we think will finally fulfill us given that none of our past experiences have? But still the mind is looking. You know, maybe the next, the next something. So in the first watch of the night, the bodhisattva saw all this endless procession of past lives. In the second watch he penetrated into the law of karma of how actions brings, bring results seeing the destinies of other beings from life to life and how beings were reborn in different circumstances according to their actions according to their karma. And it said that this awakened in him the great compassion because in surveying the world with this great eye of wisdom, in you know, seeing beings, as it said, hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirths, seeking happiness and yet not knowing the way. And so it said that it was seeing that that awakened or brought to fulfillment this great motivation of compassion. In our own lives, can we look and see how, out of ignorance, we so often do things wanting happiness and yet doing the very things that bring about suffering? Now We can see it in the variety of all our addictions, both the big addictions and even the small addictions. We think that will bring us some kind of happiness. And yet the very force of addiction brings about suffering. So the Buddha pointed out that the key to understanding this great karmic unfolding lies in the power of motivation. That's the determining karmic force. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. So one of the great opportunities of this kind of retreat for all of you is that it provides the space in a sustained way, in a subtle way, in a refined way, To really begin to understand the subtleties of our own motivations. To begin to discern which are skillful, which are not skillful. Which should we act on? Which can we let go of? The Dalai Lama had some very beautiful words to this effect. and This is when he was at a Western Buddhist teacher's conference at Spirit Rock uh, quite a few, number of years ago he made this one comment which really stuck in my mind he said that the quality of the motivation is a much truer measure of our actions than their success or failure and I thought that is a very un-American thing to say you know, mostly we measure our actions by their success or failure. And he's saying, that's really quite unimportant. What's really important is the motivation behind the action. So that's tremendously empowering because we often can't control the outcome, the success or failure of what we do, but we can understand and reflect what our motivations are. Then in the third watch of the night, it said that the bodhisattva penetrated or opened to the understanding of the four noble truths and the law of dependent origination. How the mind creates suffering through attachment and clinging, and how it can be free, by letting go of attachment. And then at daybreak, you know, it said, just as the morning star appeared in the sky, the bodhisattva's mind opened to the unconditioned, opened to the deathless, that which is beyond birth and death, open to that place of freedom. I just want to read to you the f- quite famous verse... It said that this was the kind of the first song of enlightenment that occurred to him in, in his heart, in his mind after the, this great moment of awakening. I travelled through the rounds of countless births, seeking but not finding the builder of this house, the house of self. Sorrowful is birth again and again. O oh, house builder, you have now been seen. You shall build no house again. Your rafters have been broken, your ridgepole shattered. The rafters are the defilements, ridgepole is ignorance. Rafters have been broken, your ridgepole shattered. Mind has attained to unconditioned freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. That last line is such a direct pointing to and exposition of the liberated mind. What is the Buddha saying he has accomplished in this moment of awakening? Achieved is the end of craving. So that is our practice. So, just for a moment, let's practice enlightenment. Now, just sit for a moment and relax back into the mind of no craving, mind of no clinging to anything. The Buddha said in one of his teachings let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the further shore. Let go of the present, let go of craving. This is what we're practicing these moments of liberation. Toku Ergin, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters of the last century, in one of his teachings he said, short moments, many times. So instead of thinking that we need to somehow find this place of no craving and then hold on to it, it's not the way, because the very holding becomes another kind of clinging. But can we practice that letting go? the mind of no clinging, the mind of no craving. Short moments, many times. The Buddha was enlightened at the age of 35. He spent time around the Bodhi tree, in various contemplations. And he walked slowly to Sarnath, right outside of Benares, where he met with the group of five ascetics he had practiced with, His first sermon, turning the wheel of the Dharma, setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. And then he spent the next 45 years wandering northern India, teaching this path of awakening. So we all start with our individual calls to destiny. It's what has brought us here. renouncing or going beyond the conventional views of the world that is the great renunciation going through all the struggles sitting ourselves under the bodhi tree facing the armies of Mara and through seeing the emptiness of them turning them into celestial flowers we see through them and gradually awakening to a place of greater freedom. And I think as many of you realize, as our practice unfolds, we understand more and more fully that we are not practicing for ourselves alone. This is the great teaching of Bodhijitta, the motivation and aspiration that our practice be for the welfare and the happiness and the awakening of all beings. And the Buddha emphasized this to his very first group of fully enlightened disciples. And he had his first group of 60 60 arhants. This is the direction the Buddha gave to them. He said, "'Go forth, O bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, benefit, and happiness of people and devas. Let not two go by one way. Teach the Dhamma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, excellent at the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure.' Work for the good of others, you who have done your duties. So from the very beginning, this motivation of bodhijitta is present. The bodhisattva's courageous effort through countless lifetimes on his path to Buddhahood was possible because of this motivation. And it also can become the cause of inspiration for our own efforts. At the age of 80, after 45 years of teaching, he became ill. He lay down between two sal trees, which were said to be flowering out of season, in honor of the Buddha's passing and at age 80 attained parinibbana, that enlightenment without remainder. And his last words before he died really are a very direct instruction to us. And I think to to recognize their import, just imagine, here's the Buddha, 80 years old, dying, having spent 45 years teaching this path. Many of his disciples, and it said many unseen beings, devas and brahmas, were attending at the time of his death. So clearly, his last words were undoubtedly well chosen. This was his last teaching to us. He said, With the light of perfect wisdom, dispel the clouds of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with diligence. Let's sit for a few minutes. With the light of perfect wisdom, dispel the clouds of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with diligence.